If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a primarily community-supported show, and this episode here is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I recommend to my loved ones for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. In addition to their curation of thousands of ethically made and earth-minded products, they just published some really helpful gift guides on their website, and I'm especially appreciating the one titled Eco-Friendly gifts under 150, which features these triangular reclaimed wood serving boards that are really elegant and beautiful, jewelry made out of recycled metals, this hand-woven colorful scarf made using heritage techniques by artisans in Kulu, India, and more. As I mentioned before, Maytrade offsets emissions from all of their shipping, and they also support localized regenerative textile systems with every purchase. So if you plan to buy handcrafted and responsible made gifts for yourself or loved ones this season, I highly recommend checking out Made Trade and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash greendreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash greendreamer. Anyhow, we are quickly approaching the holiday season when we're going to be bombarded by a lot more sales messages and advertisements, which yes, you just heard one here from our sponsor, which helps to make our show possible. But I hope that as with any other ads that we come across this season, we do our best to be mindful about um, what we get out of them and ultimately about the choices and the gifts that we end up purchasing or even making or growing for our loved ones. As I was thinking about which episode I wanted to replay for you this week, as we prepare behind the scenes for the winter season of the show that's coming up in a few weeks, this particular episode with Dr. Tim Kasser immediately jumped into my mind. It first published two years ago, so I'm not sure if you've already had a chance to listen to it or remember it if you did already listen to it back then, but it's an episode on the psychology of materialism, which is quite perfect for this time as we prepare ourselves for a season that in this dominant culture is heavily centered around consumerism. Especially with the pandemic this year and with so many having lost their jobs or really are struggling just to get by, I really don't want to shame anybody for participating in the sales season coming up. 
in case those discounts may be really, really helpful to you in your current circumstance. But I just find that it's always helpful for us to learn how our minds are wired to better understand ourselves and what can truly bring us long lasting fulfillment and joy. And also so that we can continue to make every choice with thought and intention, and also be able to meaningfully support the people that we love in their mental, emotional, and holistic well-being. So this is an episode that really uh, was inspiring for me when I first had the conversation, and I hope that it is the same for you as well. This is a conversation with Dr. Tim Kasser. I think the first thing that really kicked it off for me was when I was in graduate school, I had a dog and I lived in Rochester, New York, which is a city that's known for its actually excellent city park system. And before that time, you know, I was in my early 20s. I really wasn't I'll be honest, I didn't pay much attention to nature one way or another. But having a dog and being surrounded by all these great parks, um, I went to the parks a lot. And there was one particular park that was kind of an abandoned park. I probably went there... 300 times, I would imagine, over the course of a while with me and the dog. And I think only three times ever saw another human being in this park. And the city wasn't really taking care of it anymore, but it had a lot of really wonderful features to it. It had a lot of junk in it, too, but it had a lot of wonderful features to it. And I would say it's probably fair to say that it's the first place I ever kind of fell in love with as a place. And my friends always called it Tim's Park because I would spend so much time there and I was I cleaned it up. You know, I did a lot of things to help clean up the park and such. And so that's when I think I first got an awareness of of nature as a beautiful place and nature also as a ruined place, you know, because there was much about the park, Tryon Park it was called, that was not pretty because of what people had done to it. And so I think that's really for me when when I started moving in this direction to some extent. So then what led you to focus on materialism, life quality and sustainability in your research? At the same time, when I was a graduate student there at the University of Rochester, I was interested in people's values and goals. I was really interested in how it is that people try to construct their own lives. Um, and of course, values are what we think is important and our goals are our aims for what we're trying to make happen that's different than where we're at right now. And so that was my, my main focus of study. And uh, so I was studying lots of different values and goals that people might focus on. Um, but of course, living in, this was in the early 1990s, late, eight, late, nine, late 1980s. And so consumerism had certainly been around for a while, but it was definitely hitting a kind of peak at that moment. And so um, I got particularly interested in uh, what happens when people focus on materialistic values and goals and sort of stumbled into this finding that the more that people focused on materialistic goals, for money and status and image and possessions um, relative to other kinds of goals, the less happy they were. Um, and so really did that kind of research for eight years or so and then continued doing that work, but also started to uh, expand into sustainability issues around 2000 or so. Um, it was really a colleague of mine, Kirk Brown, who uh, suggested that we take a look at how materialistic values 
values were related to um, ecological outcomes too. And uh, then I've continued along on those lines uh, ever since pretty much. So what got you interested in how materialistic values affect people's well-being in general? Was it like some personal observations you had on people in the world or... Well, I think part of it was personal observations looking around at people who I knew um, and have known. I think it also was heavily influenced by, I mentioned existentialism before, but, you know, existential philosophy and existential psychology and humanistic psychology had long levied critiques against materialism and consumerism and focusing your world around, you know, other people's opinions about whether you're beautiful or own the right thing. But none of that had ever really been empirically tested. You know, it had been written about, but nobody had ever really scientifically, quantitatively looked at it with statistics and all that kind of stuff. And of course, lots of, you know, philosophers and religious people have talked about these kinds of critiques. You know, you can go back to Lao Tzu or Confucius or Jesus or Muhammad or the Buddha. They're all pretty much saying a similar kind of refrain here, you know, that if you focus your life around possessions or around manna, you know, life's not going to be so good. So I think it was that that really was driving me. And I was fortunate to be in a great place and have a wonderful mentor who saw things philosophically and psychologically similar to me and was really able to support me in that those early days when I was sort of still a bumbling uh, graduate student. So how would you define materialism, materialistic values as they have to do with us today? So I'll tell you a little bit about how we measure it. There's other ways to measure it, um, but the, what we do primarily in our studies is we give people a long list of different goals that they might have, or we call them aspirations. And so there are things like having close relationships with your family, or understanding your spiritual place in the world, or um, you know having. Uh, growing as a person, feeling safe, etc. And then some of the values and goals are also things like uh, being financially successful, um, having an image other people approve of, um, being popular, etc. So we give people this long list of goals and then we ask them to rate for each of the goals, how important that goal is to them. So it's not at all or a little important or very important or extremely important or whatever it is. And then what we do is we're able to see relative to other goals that people might care about, how important are goals for money, for possessions, for image, and for status? So the analogy that I often use is if you think of your whole value system as, a, as like a pie and each different type of value is like a slice of the pie. So you have a spirituality slice and a family slice and a hedonism slice, but you also have a materialism slice. And so what we're able to do in this is to measure kind of how big of a slice of your whole value pie concerns for money, image, and status are. And so for me, a materialistic or what materialism is, is putting a relatively high priority on those goals for money, possessions, image, and status relative to other things that one might care about. Mm. So what influences how materialistic someone is? Is it kind of innate and we're born with it or is it kind of taught to us from our upbringing? Well, first off, there's only one study to my knowledge which has ever looked at genetic influences on materialism and 
to be honest, surprisingly to me, it found basically none. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was expecting, well, maybe you get 15 (laughs) or 20% of it, but there was, there was basically no effect of genetics on materialism. This was from a twin study. Mm -hmm. What our research has suggested is there's two primary pathways by which people end up prioritizing materialistic values. So the first one's pretty obvious and you already mentioned it, which is what we call modeling, social modeling. So the more that people see messages in their environment that say that it's important to be materialistic and to care about money and status and such, um, the more materialistic people tend to be. And this has been shown in lots of different studies. You know, So if your parents are more materialistic, you are. If your friends are more materialistic, you are. If you watch a lot of television, um, you're more materialistic because, of course, there's lots of materialistic messages on mm-hmm. uh, television. Living in nations that are more neoliberal and focused on economic growth is associated with being more materialistic because you get sort of these broader political and economic messages that say that money's important too. So that's the first pathway and it's well validated in the research. The second pathway is a little more subtle and, and maybe surprising and it has to do with what we call threat or insecurity. So what we know from a variety of studies is that when people feel threatened either sort of in their lives in general or in a particular moment like in a lab, they orient towards materialistic values. Materialistic values become more important towards them. So, or for them, excuse me. So, for example, you know, in kinds of general life issues, we know that people who grow up uh, with more kind of cold, controlling parents are more materialistic. Uh, People whose parents divorced when they were young are more materialistic because that's kind of a threat. Um, Growing up in poverty is associated with being more materialistic. But we also know that like if we bring people into the lab and we randomly assign them to either experience a threat or some non-threat the subjects who experience the threat will be um, become more materialistic, at least momentarily. Mm-hmm. So in one of those studies we did, we asked people to either think about their own death or to think about a neutral topic like listening to music. And then we asked them afterwards how important different values and goals were. And we found that, sure enough, the people who'd um, been randomly assigned to think about their own death became more materialistic than the people in the control group. Um, but it's been shown with other kinds of threats as well. Is it this sense of insecurity or fear of feeling empty that drives people to want possessions to feel more secure? I think that's a big part of it. I do think that, you know, there. I think there's lots of different kinds of threats that people can feel. So people can feel threats about being empty. They can feel relationship threats. So they could feel lonely. They could feel competence threats like their self-esteem is um, not as high as they wished it to be, etc. And all of those kind of feel bad, right? People don't like to feel those kinds of insecurities about themselves or about their relationships or about their life on earth, right? (laughs) And so um, one of the things that people do is they try to compensate for that in some way. And um, society, of course, tells us that one of the ways that we can manage our threats and feel safe and secure is to have this possession and that possession and a lot of money, etc. We see this as kind of a coping mechanism that does work 
in the moment to decrease the threat, but in the long run actually doesn't do much good. So it's sort of like, you know, sometimes when people are feeling down, they'll cut themselves or they'll get drunk or they'll have a one night stand, you know. Now, at the moment, that kind of distracts them from their insecurity. And so it, it is effective in the moment of distracting them from their threat. But won't really solve the underlying problem that they have. And so it keeps them locked in a pretty vicious cycle that, that, you know, leads them to still feel threatened, leads them towards lower well-being, et cetera. I feel like today, many of our social and environmental issues stem from mindless materialism. And there's two parts to this I want to talk about. The first part is just like humans innately maybe feeling like insecure and wanting to compensate and buy things. And the second part to it is I feel like we're also in a world that encourages mindless consumption as a way to accelerate business growth for some businesses and economic growth on a bigger scale. So to that first point, why are we constantly drawn to novelty and why are to constantly want new things? Because I feel like I'm personally, I'm very mindful of what I purchase, but I still get urges to like want the latest and the newest things. So I don't know. I would love to learn more about where this comes from. (laughs) Sure. Well, you know, I don't have any direct evidence for what I'm about to say on this innate end of things, but my sense of things is that as primates, which we are, almost all primates that live in groups are very status conscious. Okay. So if you take a look at how great apes, chimps, et cetera, relate to each other, there's a lot of status hierarchy jockeying going on. And of course, I think as, as primates ourselves, as, as humans, um, that is part and parcel of how we think about ourselves vis-a-vis others. Part of what's going on, I think, in terms of concern for items and concern for possessions and for money is it's a signifier of status. And it actually is something which helps provide status, both kind of materially, right? If you have more stuff, then you can hire people to protect you or to go out and get your enemy. But also symbolically, you know, that I'm walking around with this beautiful code on or whatever, and that signals to people that I can afford something that they can't, and therefore I'm higher in status than they are. So I think that's one aspect of the innate kind of striving. I think the other aspect is that as a species hundreds of thousands of years ago, you know, we became successful as a species not because we're that big, not because we're that fast, not because our senses are so keen, but because we're excellent tool users, okay, you know, fire, spears, later on, hoes so that we could garden and and farm. It's our use of tools, which uh, as a species, we've relied on over and over again when times get tough, right? And I think that's clearly true of of our ancestors as well. I mean, the first semi-monkey human who figured out that they could actually pick up this rock and throw it at an enemy or pick up this this long piece of wood and and use it to get something to eat was using a tool and in order to satisfy some survival needs. And so I think it's really built into us as a species to look to tools which are always material 
as something that helps to satisfy us. And so I think that's part of what draws us towards these new possessions or whatever, um, you know, because there's something really deep in us as a, as a species, which orients us towards those material things because they helped us survive for a long, long time and they still help us survive today. So way back, it was obviously for survival. Today, it's just maybe we just always feel safer when we have more tools and materials around us. And that's what keeps driving this. I think that's a big part of it. You know, I mean, it's it's similar. You know, there a long, long time ago, it was really adaptive to like high fat foods because when the next drought came, you know, and there wasn't enough food, at least you had some weight on you. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a potato chip on every corner. And so it's not, you know, we still have this desire for the high fat food, but we live in a society which gives us way too much high fat food to potentially ingest. So it's still our, our primitive instincts kind of interact in a really damaging way with um, our current society, which I guess brings us to the second part of the story here too, right? Which is that right now we live in a social, political, economic system which does everything it can in order to encourage people to consume, which uh, glorifies economic growth, which glorifies business profit, which tries to push out all those other important values that we might focus on in the service of of money. And that that's how our economic system is organized, you know, as opposed to, say, in the Middle, middle Ages, where clearly there were materialistic people. But when you take a look at the at the, you know, seven deadly sins, at least four of them have something to do with trying to have too much stuff. Right. And so in that sort of an environment, materialism was frowned upon in the current political, social and economic environment, materialism is raised to the greatest good. It's said to it's said to be a great thing. And then people get socialized into this belief that money is important, that possessions are important, that status is important. And it kind of joins together with our innate tendencies to create the disaster that we're in right now. So what about our world has changed to allow for mindless materialism since it wasn't always this way? Well, I think, you know, the first is obviously media, you know, and the ability of media to deliver consumer messages, you know. So so in a, uh, this country, um, the United States, the vast majority of media is for profit, owned by for profit companies who make their money based on advertising. And so so we have this system which is designed in order to deliver entertainment, but the entertainment is just the sidelight in order to deliver the advertising or to measure people in terms of what they like and dislike so you can deliver advertising to them later on, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's the first thing we, we have. And, and you can really see this happening in the 50s with the onset of television um, and then again in the 80s with a lot of deregulation of television, et cetera. And then, of course, later on with the internet. So that's one aspect. I think another thing we have is, you know, after the after World War II ended, you know, here we had this this massive ability in the U.S. to produce a lot of stuff because they'd been producing tanks and bombs and all of the rest. And um, you also had a new clear enemy in communism with a different idea about about how to organize things socially, politically, and economically. And so the 50s is when you really see, most scholars say, the onset of consumer society, the, the real 
belief that, you know, citizens aren't citizens, they're consumers, mm -hmm. um, and that the way to uh, have the best possible society, both in terms of stability of keeping people stable um, and not revolting, but also generating a lot of income that could then be used as tax revenue that then could be spent by the government in order to build the biggest military machine the world has ever seen is through consumerism, right? You know, and is through a focus on economic growth and is through a focus on business profit. And so you really have the wholesale adoption by both Democrats and Republicans alike with the mantra of economic growth, with deregulation, um, with dropping tax rates on the rich, et cetera, et cetera, and with celebrating consumption. This isn't just a Donald Trump issue. You know, Donald Trump is, let's hope the top of it, you know, it doesn't get any higher than this, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, you can see it in Bill Clinton. You can see it in Obama. You can see it in, in most of the presidents since the fifties in terms of the, the kinds of moves that they've made towards a more extreme form of capitalism than we had before. Well, I feel like sometimes when we understand how we're wired, we can then see past that to consciously work against it. So for example, like when I understand that my, my drive to eat fatty and sweet foods or junk food stems from my innate desire to just have more energy, but there's so much junk food available that helps me to like stop myself from doing that. So yeah. in terms of materialism, what are the latest findings to do with what it takes for us to really improve our life quality without being sucked into materialism that we should keep mm -hmm. in mind? Well, there's a lot of different things, but I'll, I'll say my strategy boils down to three things. So the first is that we know from the research that the more social models of materialism you're exposed to, the more you're going to care about it. And even if you're not really a materialistic person, you kind of alluded to this before, you know, you sort of see the thing and then you're like, ooh, that's kind of cool, you know. And, and so and, and that's normal, you know. And so the first thing is to limit your exposure as much as possible to those materialistic messages, to use things like ad block, to spend less time. Um, on commercial television to cancel your subscriptions to magazines that make you feel bad about your body and say that you should buy X and Y and Z to feel good about your body. Get that junk out of your life as much as possible so that you're not going to kind of continually reminded of all this stuff that you don't really need anyway and that's probably going to put you into debt if you buy it. Limit your exposure is the first step. The second step goes also to the safety security issue is that, you know, during those times when you're feeling say unsafe or insecure or threatened or incompetent or whatever it is, rather than hopping onto the internet and buying something or going shopping or whatever, to stop and to use the kind of mindfulness that you just noted um, that we can use with regard to food and to use that with regard to consumerism and to say, well, wait a second. I am feeling bad right now. Last time when I bought a sweater to make myself feel better, did it really work in the long term to solve the underlying problem? Did it have other negative outcomes or are there better things I could do right now like go for a walk or take a nice warm bath or call up a friend or make myself some nice healthy food to eat or whatever, right? To find a different solution. So those are the first two. The third one has to do with the value pie that I talked about before. So you'll remember that I said that, you know, the that you can think of your value system as being like a big pie with a lot of different slices in it. Um, one of the things that to me has been most interesting that we've discovered over the last 10 or so years is that 
there's an interesting kind of dynamic uh, tension in the value system such that some values are compatible with each other and others are in conflict with each other. So we know, for example, that money, image, and status are relatively compatible values, but they stand in relative conflict with a set of values that we call intrinsic values. So intrinsic values, we call them intrinsic because they're intrinsically satisfying to pursue because they meet basic intrinsic psychological needs we all have. So the three main intrinsic values we focus on are for personal growth, so kind of doing things you're fun that you find fun and interesting, affiliation, which is having close relationships with others, and community feeling, which is trying to help the broader world be a better place. Physical health, by the way, is also an intrinsic value. Now, what we know is that the more that people focus on materialistic values, the less they focus on intrinsic values. But the reverse is also true. The more that people focus on intrinsic values, the less they focus on materialistic values. And there's all kinds of different evidence to, that supports this idea, both experimental evidence and studies in lots of different nations, et cetera. But what, the, what this means practically is that the way to avoid getting sucked into materialism is to ask yourself, okay, what do I really care about? If it really is those intrinsic values, which it probably is for most people, am I actually living my life in a way which is consistent with my intrinsic values? So is the work I do consistent with intrinsic values? Is how I spend a Saturday afternoon consistent with my intrinsic values? Are my investments aligned with my intrinsic values? Are the kind of people I hang out with ones who support my intrinsic values or who support materialistic values, etc.? And so the solution then becomes to reorient one's life so that one's intrinsic values are actually guiding it rather than those materialistic values. Now, what we know is that the more that people focus on intrinsic values, the happier they are, the more pro-socially they behave, and the more ecologically sustainable they are. And so um, those intrinsic values not only help to suppress the materialistic values, they also have this kind of triple win of being happier, a nicer person, and a more sustainable person. Definitely. So we'll have to keep in touch with our intrinsic values and that will be better for our personal well-being and also for sustainability. That's right. And for civil society. Mm. So I want to touch on your recent book. It's called Hypercapitalism. Can you share your motivation to write this and what the biggest message you want to get out there is with the book? Sure. Well, the first thing I tell listeners is that it's a cartoon book. So it's a collaboration that I did with a well-known cartoonist named Larry Gonick, um, who's best known for a five-volume series, uh, The Cartoon History of the Universe. And um, I had been trying to write this book for a long time. It actually started it back in 2007, and I failed at it. And then I started it again in 10, and I failed at it. And then finally, I was like, maybe it should be a cartoon book. And so I wrote Larry, and he agreed to work with me on on it. It came out in January. And I would say I have two primary things going on in the book. You know, the, f the first thing that's happening in the book is to explain to people what capitalism is, what it's become, and what the underlying values of it are. And, and that goes back to that dynamic tension we just talked about that, you know, capitalism is about making money. It's about prioritizing materialistic values. And so part of why the world's so messed up is because the more that people and societies care about the m money, the less they're going to care about those intrinsic values. And that's why we have an economic system which leads to such inequality, which leads to such ecological degradation, and which is so 
total, you know, soul sapping. So I think that's the first, that's part one. Um, part two of the book is about solutions. And so um, what that is, is to show a variety of different ways that people right now are working towards, um, you know, lifestyles and business organizations and political actions that are organized around intrinsic values rather than around materialistic values. And it's all based, it's not some pie in the sky stuff. It's things people are actually doing, some of which have been tested and show that they work pretty well. So that's sort of the second major purpose of the book. But underlying it all is the goal to make it accessible and hopefully a little fun. Um, And that's part of why we did it in the cartoon format. We'll definitely have to check your book out. I'll link to this in the show notes so our listeners can check it out. I'd love to hear just knowing everything you know about how humans are wired, what people are driven by. What do you think we need most today to collectively redefine what it means to live well so that we can actually accelerate towards better life quality and a sustainable planet? Well, for me, I think we really have to begin by questioning our political, economic, social system and the extent to which each of us contributes to it and has taken on its beliefs. You know, we're not going to do anything quickly about the way we're hardwired, but we do have this economic system of capitalism, which is designed to sort of take advantage of, of this way we have that turns out not to be very good for our well-being or society or the earth. And so I think, you know, as somebody who's been writing about capitalism and talking about it for a long time, I see an opening now that didn't used to be here. You know, I mean, I think before the 2008 financial crisis, it was very difficult to even say the word capitalism without people immediately jumping on me, I have to say. Now, since then, you can talk about capitalism and you can even start to point out some of its difficulties and some of its pains that it brings along. And I think we need to really look long and hard at the system that drives our economy and our politics and start to develop better and new things. And I think personally to ask ourselves, is this really the life I want for myself or for my children or for the people I I love um, and what can I do tomorrow that shows my intrinsic values rather than just trying to make money again. So on an individual level, we just have to start with choosing to focus our, on our intrinsic values and maybe that will create a ripple effect into society. <laughs> Well, my sense is yes. I mean, that that's really the way that I've come to look at it, you know, is that and, and but there's lots of ways to do that. Again, you can do that in, you know, the things you buy and we ought to. That's not enough, but it's something we can do it in the things we the way we invest, but we can do it in our workplaces, you know, and and work to make changes in terms of how our work organizations are, are set up. We can do it in our local communities with regard to, you know, the, the rules and our school boards or the rules in our town about bike lanes. Um, And then we can do it at at bigger and bigger federal levels. You know, I think too often people get sucked into the idea that anything has to, you know, the government should do it, you know, and this is in some ways where my wife says I'm kind of a Republican, you know, is that I do do think, you know, if we rely too much on the government, that's especially the federal government. First off, we're not going to see anything change for a while. And and second off, it's not going to happen. You know, what we need to do is to start to make changes in our lives, in our workplaces, in our local politics, and watch those start to ripple up. That's that's my sense of the best way forward. 
Mm. Well, we look forward to continually learning more from you and checking your book out. Where can we go to follow you online and on social media and find hypercapitalism? Uh, well, I don't really do much social media. I do have a website. So if people, uh, you know, do an internet search on my name, Tim Kasser with a K, uh, they'll find my website and this and that about me. I do have a, a few uh, videos on YouTube. There's one kind of fun animated one that's about five minutes long that I narrate. So you could check that out. But I don't do much other social media. <laughs> uh, Hypercapitalism was published by the New Press in 2018. And so if you visit the New Press's website um, or you just do an internet search on hypercapitalism in my name, you'll be able to find it, I'm sure. Um, or ask your local library if they'll get a copy and then other people can look at it too. What's an uplifting social media account, which I know you don't follow, or publication you follow? To be honest, all I read is my local newspaper and uh, an occasional New Yorker. So I don't know that I'm the best <laughs> That's person. That's cool. That. Um, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? The thing I tell myself to be positive is that this is the one life I have as me and don't waste it. Do the best I can given what my skills are and what my situation is. Mm. What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? For my physical health, every day I'm outside doing something. We live on 10 acres, so there's always something to do. Uh, for my mental health, I play the piano and sing every day. Uh, what's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I would say the biggest thing is that I've been in the vegetable garden much more intensively the last three months than ever before. We have two big vegetable gardens as well as fruit trees and such. And I've spent a lot of time out there. And then we eat the food and can it and freeze it and all that. Hmm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? The thing that makes me most hopeful is that is something I said already, that Intrinsic values not only suppress materialistic values, but they're associated with being happier, being nicer, and living more sustainably. And so it's actually a fairly simple solution if we can figure out how to do it in our lives and in our organizations. Mm -hmm. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Go do whatever it is you can do this next few months. Do the one or two things that you can do. Get those solidified in your life. Don't try to do everything in the next six months. Pick the one or two things you can do. Get them solidified in your life. Once they're solidified, then pick the next one or two things you can do. Solidify those. And you'll be amazed how far you can get in five or ten years. <laughs> 